Let's turn together to 2 Samuel, reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was, uh, was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom, all his household. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whole earth is full of his glory. It's the vision of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, your God is holy, therefore you shall be holy. Words from God through Moses, the prophet. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say the four heavenly creatures recorded in the book of Revelation. The subject of the holiness of God is one that runs throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of the variety of times and the variety of, uh, uh, of parts of the Bible, prophecy, history, visionary, uh, uh, apocalyptic. These are all descriptions of our God who is holy. And the holiness of God is a predominant feature of this passage today, even though the word is not used. It's my desire today to demonstrate the holiness of God, that we would reverence God for his holiness, and that we would learn that we must live each day depending upon his grace and mercy. See this through this historical account of David and of Uzzah, who was struck down. We need to begin with the Ark of the Covenant. It plays a major role here, doesn't it? 
So when David made Jerusalem his capital city, I said that he centralized the government. He made Jerusalem the central place where people could come so that his reign and his rule could be accessed by all of the tribes of Israel. He also made Jerusalem, and and is in in the process of making Jerusalem, the central location for the spiritual life of the nation. At that point in redemptive history, God's people would gather just at one location for the official public worship of God, and that was at the tabernacle, especially where the Ark of the Covenant was located. But the Ark wasn't in Jerusalem at this point. You have to turn back into 1 Samuel to find out what had happened to it. It was in a city named Baal Judah, or as it's called in 1 Samuel, Kiriath-Jerim, and it got there in a kind of roundabout way. I won't retell that story, but you can read about it in 1 Samuel 4, uh, chapters 4 and 6 through 6. In summary, the Philistines had captured it in war, and they thought they had captured Israel's God. And they took it to their temple and, uh, and discovered that, uh, that the God of Israel was much more powerful than their false gods, their idols. After being plagued by God, the Philistines decided, you know what, it's not such a good thing for us to have the Ark of the Covenant here in our country. Let's send it back, Uh, which they did. They sent it back, and it ended up in Kiriath-Jerim in the house of a man named Abinadab. And it remained there for 20 years. Now that David was king, he wanted to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. It's a really good idea. His desire is right. It emphasizes just how important the worship of God is, not just for David, but for all of us. The worship of God is a central part of our lives. And for David, that worship took place at the tabernacle where the, where the ark was. So, it's, uh, it's so important that, uh, that I'd like to just give a, a brief review of the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. It goes back to when the Lord brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt. He gave them certain signs of his presence amongst his people. And it started with the fact that he showed himself by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar would lead them as they would travel along, and when they stopped, that pillar would be right in the middle of the camp. God was present with them. And then the Lord gave other signs. And most importantly, he gave them the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Tabernacle was something of a tent where the people of God could come and worship the Lord. And when they first built the tabernacle, God's glory, that pillar of of his presence, descended on the tabernacle, especially on the ark. If you look a little closer, the uh, the ark was a a box of wood that was then decorated and overlaid with gold. And on the top of that box was a lid again, covered with gold, and finely crafted with 
beauty and glory, right? <laughs> With beauty and glory, the angels of the Lord, cherubim, stretched out their wings over what was called the mercy seat. And, uh, and this ark came to represent the presence of God. We know that God wasn't in the box. You can't put God in a box, can you, right? That's just impossible. But it represented the presence of God. And as the people understood it, there were aspects of God's presence that came to rise up to the top. You could summarize them under three headings, the prophet, priest, and king. Let me start with prophet. God chose the central place of worship as the place where he would declare his glory. He would, says he would declare his name there. You can even pick that up here in this passage because it is the ark that is described as the ark that, has, uh, that is of his name, the Lord of hosts who dwells among the cherubim. So the revelatory aspect of the worship of God is represented by the prophet. The priest is maybe the clearest indication because it is at the Ark of the Covenant where sacrifices were made. The mercy seat was sprinkled with the blood of a lamb for the forgiveness of sins. And it was the priestly function of, of the Levites and of the high priest especially to carry out those sacrifices. And it was at the Ark of the Covenant that mercy was declared and mercy was anticipated being fulfilled when one perfect sacrifice would come. And the office of king is also described here. The mercy seat has, uh, or excuse me, the ark has a seat on it, like a throne. You might remember that when God gave directions on how to construct this, that he had taken Moses uh, into the heavenly throne room, that the tabernacle and the ark were just types or symbols of the reality. So Moses saw the heavenly throne room of God. The heavenly throne room where Isaiah describes it as the Lord Almighty sitting on, his, on a throne and his glory filling the sanctuary and surrounded by the angels, the cherubim, who constantly flew, covering their faces and their feet and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The ark came to represent, then, the ruling of God over his people, the forgiveness of sins that is declared by his mercy, the uh, proclamation that there is only one true God, prophet, priest, and king. And in saying it that way, I hope you can see that in the coming of Jesus Christ, he fulfills all of these ways that the ark was representing the presence of God. And it's for this reason why it is said that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst his people. He came to dwell amongst his people, to 
declare the one and only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins and to rule in a way that rescues us from Satan and defends us from our enemies. Ark of the Covenant is of incredible significance, not just for David, but you can see it foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ, the redemption that he would accomplish. It's no wonder, then, that David wanted to bring Ark to Jerusalem. We'll turn there, then, to see David's plan to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. Commentator Davis says that by bringing the ark to Zion, David is saying that the Lord's presence can no longer remain, so to speak, in the background, but must be the central focus and reality of the Davidic kingdom. It must be the central focus. It's no wonder, then, that David wanted this, and it's no wonder, then, that David would make a big deal about the ark coming to Jerusalem, and he makes a big deal, doesn't he? If you look at the text again, you'll see that that he gathered together the choice men of Israel, 30,000, to go to this little city of Kiriath-Jerim and to march together back to Jerusalem with the ark of the covenant with the music of the instruments of worship playing all of that time. And amongst these 30,000 men, notice that it says that he brought them from all of Israel, not just from his tribe, but from all of Israel. Remember, he was uniting the tribes. This was part of his plan or part of his purpose. You might also think of this as 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 gathering together the, the leaders, the judges, the important rulers that were scattered throughout the, the, the children of Israel. It is an incredible state event. Not just spiritually, but, uh, but, but politically and culturally. You might compare it to the United States when there's the inauguration of a a new president. It is a big deal. And what David is doing here is indeed a big deal. Along with those details, David had a new cart built. No cart off the used cart lot would do for this event. A new cart was built to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And as had been prepared, they put the Ark on that cart. It was driven and accompanied by the two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio. And with a great and grand promenade, so to speak, or parade, we might even call it. Imagine the excitement. They were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But then, all of a sudden, David's plans went awry. 
as they were traveling along, one of the oxen stumbled and, and the cart is jostled. And uh, as you can imagine, with a cart jostling, that the ark starts to slip and slide and it's going to fall off the cart onto the ground. What would you do in that circumstance? Well, probably what Uzzah did. He reached out to steady the ark so that it wouldn't fall on the ground. The anger of the Lord burst out against Uzzah when he touched the ark. He died there beside the ark. The anger of the Lord was aroused against him. It says that God struck him there for his error. Some translations say his irreverence as well. The word could be translated that way too. And that has a weighty significance to it as we are going to see. He was struck down because of his error, because of his irreverence, a, a, a fact that frightened David, as I think it probably frightened everyone who was there. It even strikes an element of fright into me and to us today, that God would strike down one for his error stand, O oh God, if you are to mark my iniquities, if you are to remember my sins. And David was angry, it says. What had gone wrong? Wasn't David's plan a good plan? I said it was a good plan. Wasn't he doing something good? And noble? Wasn't he honoring God by intending to make the Lord's worship a central part of his administration and to, to intentionally lead his country in the worship of the Lord as he, as he could? Why? Why? Why would God strike Uzzah down? Answer is quite simply because God is holy. God is holy. If you're following along in the outline, this is where we'll speak of the holiness of God. Once more, I want to back up and have you think about, about God's holiness and his redeeming a sinful people. And in God's providence, he showed that redemption and even declared that redemption. Remember prophet, priest, and king? He declares that by saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And by those symbols of the fiery pillar and the pillar of cloud, he showed that yes, even the holy God would be in the midst of his people. And the tabernacle was given to show that God is holy and that we are not. 
Remember that, that, that the tabernacle and the ark declares and reveals the presence of a holy God in the midst of a sinful, sinful people. Even the construction of the tabernacle speaks to that. The ark was in the, the most uh, secured portion of the tent. It was separated out by several different barriers. The people of God would come to the tabernacle, and what they would come to first was a, was a, a fence made of cloth. And there was a courtyard beyond that, that where they could not enter. The priests of the Lord would be there and would minister. There would be, uh, there would be a large basin for ceremonial cleansing. There would be an altar to make sacrifices for sins. And the smoke of that would go up daily, every single day. And beyond that, there were, then you come to the tabernacle proper and there was, a, there was a curtain wall. And only some priests could go beyond that into what was called <clears throat> the holy place. And there was another altar there, an altar of incense that would be burning, representing the prayers of God's people going up before the Lord. And there was another wall behind which was the Holy of Holies, where the ark was kept. And no one went in there except for one person, one time out of the year. High priest, after cleansing himself by sacrifice, washings, go in to the Holy of Holies to take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. There are a couple of ways you could read this. One is, you could read this and understand that these these, uh, barriers were to keep a sinful people from intruding in on a God who is holy. The Bible also says you could read it another way. Those barriers were there so that the holy God would not break out against the sinful people. And you could read it one other way because of that. You can stand in awe of the very fact that God would mercifully save sinners. He would not strike down those who are irreverent to him, that are unholy because of our sins. Of the ark itself, God gave specific instructions. Told Moses how it should be built. Told him what to put inside it. He told them, no one is to touch it. No one is to open the lid to look in it. Just how was it supposed to be moved? God had provided for that. That box had golden rings set on the sides, and there were poles that were slid into those rings. And then special priests would lift it up and put it on their shoulders, and they would carry it. Carry it. There is... uh, No ox cart in the picture. This was one other aspect of the significance of the holiness of God. 
And David, with all of the best intention in his heart and his mind, was putting together something grand and glorious to mark the bringing of the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. And uh, provided a brand new cart. That's not what God had commanded. And he showed disregard for God's law and disregard for God's holiness because of this. God had warned them, and that was merciful. He warned them so that they would not die. But by their disobedience, even though it was of good intent, David, and then Uzzah reached out to steady Ark of the Covenant so that it would not fall, and God broke out against Uzzah. In fact, that's the way David names the place. The name of the place is Perez, Uzzah, Perez meaning outbreak. If that rings a bell, turn back to chapter 5, and you'll see that God had broken out against the Philistines in the battle there. And so the name of the place was called Baal Perazim, the Lord of Outbreaks. And in this case, the Lord broke out against Uzzah. Why? Because God is holy and he will be regarded as holy by his people. As he said earlier in the history, when Nadab and Abihu had offered strange fire, I will be regarded as holy. Point is, God does not live in a tent. You can't put him in a box. You cannot manipulate him. You can't tote him around like the Philistines did with their idols. He is holy and must be regarded as holy. So what about Uzzah? Wasn't he maintaining the holiness of God by protecting the Ark of the Covenant from falling down into this track of thousands of people following behind ox cart. I don't know if you've ever seen at a parade here in Stillwater what happens behind the animals. Imagine what if the ark fell into the droppings of the ox. What a, what a horrifying thing that would be. Yeah, we need to stop it from falling down. But as R.C. Sproul has I think very memorably said, Uzzah did the unthinkable. He touched the throne of God. We say, so wait a minute, why did he do it? His motive was pure. He was trying to preserve the throne of God from being desecrated by the mud. But, says Sproul, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. They were not. God is holy, holy, holy. And since he is holy, he calls us to be holy. You and I are not. 
Uzzah was not. And David was not. And as a lesson of his holiness, God broke out and struck down Uzzah. As I said, this message is something of a terrifying one for which one of us can say that we are are holy as God is holy. Not one of us can say that. I read from Malachi 3 and our call to worship. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Or as Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? None of us. None of you. But, says Psalm 130, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with God. This is why Jesus Christ came. He came to lay down his life for us. He was struck down for your iniquities. That is a glorious gospel truth comes out in this passage. The wages of sin is death, which we all deserve, but there is forgiveness with God through Jesus Christ. He was struck down for you. We will memorialize that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And more than memorialize that, the Lord himself is present among us and ministers his presence to us by the sacrament. And he ministers to you, assuring you that he was struck down for you. His body and his blood are represented, show that the price has been paid. There is forgiveness with God who is full of love and mercy. Jesus came that he might bring us to God. And that perhaps captures David's mistake. He thought he was bringing God to him. But he missed this point of the holiness of God. In doing so, he decreased God's glory. He was treating God just like the Philistines treated their gods. And we do the same, don't we? If all you think you need is to bring a little bit of God into your life. My life would be better if I just got a little bit of God into it. That's not what you need. It is absolutely not what you need. What you need is for Christ to bring you to God. The good news of this passage is that God is merciful. He is holy and will be regarded as holy. He is also full of mercy. And through Christ, he forgives your sins. 
Through Christ, he forgives you from all unrighteousness. Through Christ, he covers your shame. One true God is indeed holy. I pray that today and through the rest of your lives that you would live each day depending upon that grace and mercy comes in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we humbly bow before you. There is a holy fear and reverence that we give to you today, recognizing how easy it is for us to think lightly of your glory and your holiness. Instead, O oh Lord, we pray that you would be lifted up in our midst today, that your holiness would, uh, would be uh, revealed to us that in the presence of that holiness, that we would bow and, and, uh, and confess our sins, that we would cling to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that by your Spirit, that you would communicate the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sing Psalm 24 together. It asks and answers a question. The question that is asked in this psalm is, who can ascend up into the holy hill of God? Speaking in the language of the Old Testament and the temple and Jerusalem. Who can ascend? Who can be in the holy presence of God? The man whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure. That has to be Jesus. He is the one who leads us up into that holy presence of the Lord. We sing this with great joy, knowing that Christ has indeed forgiven our sins. Let's stand and sing Psalm 24. We'll sing Selection A.